Good morning. Uh, my name's Charlie. I'm the other minister here, and it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, for those of you that are visiting today or that are new here, we are working our way through a book of the Old Testament. It's a book called Daniel. It's a story that is set five to six hundred years before the birth of Jesus. Uh, the Israelite people have been taken into exile. They've been overrun by the Babylonians, and 25% of their population have been taken to Babylon into exile. Amongst them, Daniel the man that this book is written about. And we're following his story while he is in exile and in captivity in Babylon. And we're up to chapter five. And if you want to listen to the chapters one to four, the sermons are all available on our website. But today we arrive at this fantastic story in chapter five. There's a new king in town, in case you hadn't noticed. Nebuchadnezzar is dead, and he has been replaced by Belshazzar. Belshazzar didn't exist. Or at least that's what you would have been told 150 years ago. Because there was no extra biblical record for Belshazzar. That was until 150 years ago. You see, people used to use that argument to say, well, the the Bible was was made up. There's no record of this king. There's no record of this story. Who was he? Well, until in 1854, this cylinder was uncovered in the ziggurat of Ur, and translated. And what's fascinating about the writings on this tablet, this cylindrical tablet, is that they tell the story of Nebuchadnezzar, of his missing years of leadership, of his restoration, and of a king that followed Nebuchadnezzar in ruling Babylon called Nabonidus. Perhaps doesn't help us too much to begin with until you read on and we discover that Nabonidus spent 10 years fighting a war in Arabia and he left in charge of the land his regent, Belshazzar. He was away fighting a war and he left Belshazzar in charge of the country. Belshazzar was a young, arrogant, prideful man who'd been given a station that perhaps he didn't warrant. So back in chapter four, we had the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was was also a prideful man and he was humbled, but eventually Nebuchadnezzar repented. Here in chapter five, we have the story of Belshazzar, uh, proud, arrogant, boastful. But in this story, he's given no time to repent and his judgment is swift. See, he's throwing a party for his nobles, for the nobles in the land. Why, we're not told, but perhaps it's to cement his position as leader. You know, to throw an extravagant party to show how great and powerful he is. Or perhaps it's because he knows that the enemy are at his gate. And this is one last hurrah. If you read some of the clues in the text, it was more of an orgy than a party. A thousand of his nobles celebrating. And, and you can imagine the man reclining in the middle, wanting to show how great he is. And he's, he's going to one-up his ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar. The text talks about his father. But in, in Hebrew culture, your father was one of your ancestors, your fathers. My father, Nebuchadnezzar, could be several generations removed. But he's still my father, if that makes sense. That's the way Israelites and Hebrews talk about their ancestors. So he's going to show... he's. You know, he's, he's got the bravado. He's even, he's even more powerful than his, end, his ancestor. So take those, take those goblets 
that Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem. Take them and bring them here. I'm going to drink out of them. I'm just going to show you just the kind of guy I am. Perhaps a mistake. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand of the royal palace. The king watched as the hand wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. God's judgment on him is swift and it's in the form of this hand writing on the wall, um, God's graffiti. Um, I wonder if that's where Microsoft got the idea for PowerPoint from. Um, It's a great image that has inspired so much in art and in literature. It's where we get the phrase, the writing on the wall from. You've heard that? You know, somebody's about to lose their job or the writing's on the wall for them. It comes from this story. Or, Or the phrase, his days are numbered. Also taken from this story. And, and quite understandably, Belshazzar is frightened. Um, just one quick aside. Often we think when the word of God comes to us, when God challenges us with something, we think it should always be nice and comfortable. Um, we often want a nodding dog version of Jesus who sits on the car dashboard going, oh yes. <laughs> Sometimes God's word to us is a challenge and it brings provocation. And it brings a need to change. And that's what's happened in this story. And Belshazzar is terrified. In fact, um, forgive me, but where it says in our text, his knees knocked together, the Hebrew, exact Hebrew, literal translation are his knots were loosened. (laughs) Which you can imagine what most scholars imagine that means. Belshazzar did to himself at that point. Belshazzar was so frightened by this image that he soiled himself, is the polite way to put it. Well, at that point, the queen, um, the queen, hearing voices from the kings and the nobles, came into the banquet hall. Oh, sorry, that was the picture to go with the last bit. Um, the, the queen, hearing the voices from the kings and nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Call for Daniel. And he'll tell you what the writing means. The queen, probably Nabonidus' wife, comes in to try to save the day. She's seen what's happening. This, this, this young upstart left in charge of the kingdom only a few minutes ago was showing how great he is. Is now in utter embarrassment and shame in front of all of his nobles and quaking with fear. And the queen comes in and says, well, there's one who can, who can tell you what this means. His name is Daniel. So Daniel was brought before the king. And the king said to him, are you Daniel? One of the exiles my father brought out of Judah. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Note he can only make him the third highest ruler because he's second and Nebuchadnezzar is is first. So he can only offer him the position of third. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And because of his high position, everyone feared him. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne, stripped of his glory and driven away from the people and given the mind of the animal. Those missing years that the cylinder talked about. Until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. And this is key. But you, Belshazzar, his son, 
have not humbled yourselves, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You've had goblets from the temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and the rest of your party drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone, which cannot see nor understand. But you do not honor God who holds your life in his hand and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. The pride and arrogance of Belshazzar. It is true, pride comes before a fall. And Belshazzar is a proud fool. Pride and arrogance are his fault lines. Just as a thought, are you aware where your fault lines are? James chapter, the book of James chapter 5 verse 16 says, confess your, and then most modern translations have sins, but there's some argument that it should be translated confess your faults. And that feels a bit deeper to me than sins. Perhaps faults are where our sins come from. Our faults. Confess to one another our faults. Do, do you have somebody in your life who, you're, when you're aware of where your faults are, where your temptations lie, they can hold you accountable. They can walk with you. And you can share your life with them to confess your faults to them. See, Belshazzar's fault, his fault line was arrogance and pride. And he sets himself even, even beyond the pride and arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, the old-fashioned word for it would be hubris, wouldn't it? And Daniel says to him, even Nebuchadnezzar didn't do this. Nebuchadnezzar, who took the, the, the gold from the temple in Jerusalem, he still had respect for it. He still treated it with dignity and respect, even though in Nebuchadnezzar's mind it belonged to him because he defeated the Israelite people and their God. He still treated with respect the items from the temple. But you have gone way beyond this. You've defiled yourself and you've defiled. Sacrilege would be perhaps the word we might use for it. Just want to draw on that difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar very briefly. Because a thought came to me as I was preparing this. Are you a Nebuchadnezzar or a Belshazzar? Which one do you want to be? Um, you see, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar falls. He sins. He, he's arrogant. He knows where his fault lines are. But he, in the end, he repents. And he comes back to God. And his ending is a good one. Belshazzar doesn't. Isn't given chance to, perhaps you might argue. And his ending is a bad one. And I've been at a lot of funerals recently just so happened, I've been reflecting on what makes a good ending. And I was thinking of, um, I was just remembering back to Brian Hasler's funeral as I was repairing this. What a, what a celebration that was. What a genuine celebration of a life well lived, of a good ending. You know, Brian wasn't perfect. We know that. He's human. But what a great celebration. God, I pray that when I get there, my life ends well. Not perhaps as Belshazzar's did. And I think the key verse in this story is this verse in, 20, in verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, you've not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. It's a message from God. Um. You have not humbled yourself, even though you knew all this, even though you knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar, even though you knew Nebuchadnezzar's story. 
that he was humbled and restored, even though you were fully aware of that, you did not learn the lessons of the past. I guess one of the things I want to draw out for us today is actually the question, are you somebody who can learn from your elders? Are you somebody who is willing to learn, who's willing to reflect, who's willing to learn the lessons of the past and to apply them? Now, I don't think by any means that everyone is an elder. Some people just grow old. Not everyone who grows old becomes an elder. What do I mean that? When do we record? You know when you're in the presence of somebody in a community who is an elder. I would suggest they're generally somebody who's learnt the lessons of life, who's discovered humility, who's found wisdom and faith on the other side of challenge and has lived through some of those moments and is still standing and is still calling us to be faithful. Somebody who is a lifelong learner, willing to continue to reflect and grow. I, he's not here, so I can do it safely. I, I want to kind of pay respect to Colin Cross at this point. Yep. I just want to pay respect to Colin. Colin is somebody who is learning still. At his age, he came back to me the other day with all this exciting stuff he's new learnt. He's, he's learnt. That, I think, is the character of an elder. And our challenge to us is, when we grow old, do we, are we just going to grow old or do we want to become elders within our community, within our families, within our places of responsibility? Are we willing to be lifelong learners? Are you teachable? Because that was Belshazzar's mistake. He's a young upstart who's not teachable, who's not learnt the lessons of the past, the lessons of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what was written. Most scholars think that was, I mean, okay, okay, that's, that's English letters, not Hebrew letters, but probably all written in one word without gaps in them. And perhaps that's why the, the bit of the story that I edited out was where the, the wise men of Babylon, the magicians and the sorcerers, they came and they couldn't work out what it said. That was the bit I abridged because there was a big chunk of that in the middle of the story and we'd still be here with the reading if I'd included it. But the wise men and the leaders of Babylon, they couldn't work out what this meant. Perhaps because it was one long stream of characters. It reminds me of this poem by Gordon Bailey. Christmas sacred... Christ massacred, it depends where you draw the line. I'll give you a moment. So Daniel comes in and he breaks the stream up. Mene, mene, tekel, passing. And here's what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered your days and your reign and brought you to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar, God has weighed you in his hands and he's found you wanting. And judgment is swift. While you're here acting like the big man, your enemy is at the gate and you're about to lose everything. In fact, he just has time to reward Daniel before we read at the end of the verse, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. What we have here is a, is a, is a moment in history. This is the change from the Babylonian em- empire to the Medo-Persian empire. In fact, Herodotus and Xenophon, 
to historians of the time, they date this moment. And, and, and if you compare it to a, a, a contemporary calendar, it's October the 12th, 539 BC. Because they record that on that night, during a royal banquet, there was a young and irreligious Babylonian king who was killed. And history also tells us how they did it. That the Medes and the Persians temporarily diverted the river Euphrates. Um, Babylon had massive walls. In fact, it was said you could turn a four-horse chariot around on the walls. They were so wide. They were one of the... um, well, I think I nicked that from your sermon last week. Yes, I did. Uh, one, of the, uh, one, one of the wonders of the world. And these walls, the, the river Euphrates ran through Babylon. And so the river ran under the walls. So what the Medes and the Persians did is they diverted the river Euphrates to lower its level down so they could walk in it. And they walked under the walls into the town and sacked Babylon. It is literally the end of an empire this night. So there's the overview of the story. What, what do I want us to learn or, or what can we reflect on this in the last few minutes that I have? Well, a couple of things about the writing on the wall. I want us to, to think about the way God communicates with us. God communicates with us in ways that we can receive. God has a way of getting into our hearts and our minds. Even when the front door is shut, he finds a way in round the side. God is a commen- creative communicator who finds the way. Just imagine if Daniel that evening had marched into the banquet to condemn Belshazzar for his idolatry. He'd have had his head lopped off and that would have been the end of the message. Instead, this strange story comes to pass with the writing on the wall and Daniel is invited by the king to bring God's word to him. It's what Gerard Kelly uh, Gerard Kelly has written a book on Daniel that we're using as a basis for these talks. He calls it a poetic faith. It's quite a difficult, but I think quite an important idea about how God uses language and story to speak to us, to speak into Belshazzar's life and to draw Daniel into the story. It's a bit like this. Every teacher here knows. Every teacher in the room knows it's far better for a person to work something out for themselves than to be told it. Because if they work it out for themselves, it has much more impact than if you simply tell them. It's a bit like reading a good detective story. Anyone like detective novels? You know, you get into a good detective novel and you get to the last chapter. And at the same time as you are being told what happened, you are discovering it for yourself. Because you've been drawn in to the narrative. The God of Daniel 5 is a Daniel who speaks through riddles, pictures, metaphors and mystery. Who appears to us in words and ways that we can understand. A God who asks of us that we show determination to find the truth. Why does God use this puzzle for Belshazzar? Because he wants to draw him in. It's why Jesus spoke in parables. It's why Jesus told stories. Because they draw us in into the narrative and they cause us to be a part of what is going on and to seek truth for ourselves. Like Belshazzar saying, Daniel, tell me what it means. God communicates us with a way that draws us up into his life through story, parable, mystery and puzzle. You already know one of my favourite authors is Brian McLaren and I came across this quote from him. 
Our words will seek to be servants of mystery, not removers of it, as they were in the old world. They will convey a message that is clear yet mysterious, simple yet mysterious, substantial yet mysterious. My faith developed in an old world of many words, in a naive confidence that the power of many words, as if the mysteries of faith could be captured like fine print conditions in a legal document and reduced to safe equations. Mysteries, however, cannot be captured so precisely. Freeze-dried coffee, butterflies on pins, frogs in formaldehyde all lose something in our attempts at capturing, defining, preserving and rendering them less jumpy, flighty or fluid. In the new world, we will understand this a little better. By the new world, he's talking about post-Christendom, he's talking about post-modernism, he's addressing how we share our faith in a contemporary world. I think it's no accident that one of the most successful evangelistic tools for years, Alpha, has its logo as a question mark. Because it appeals to people, come, bring your questions, ask your questions, explore your questions, and let's do this together. Or who remembers this from the millennium? I realise I'm in danger of using old illustrations now. I've got to that point where my illustrations are from 12 years ago. Sorry. Um, seeing Salvation, the exhibition at the, at the National Gallery in the year 2000. Uh, Neil McGregor, the guy pictured on the right, had to fight to have that exhibition put on. He had to fight with the, uh, the management at the National Gallery they said, they, who wants to come and look at this at the millennium? And he's saying, no, this is really important. And they took all the pictures of Jesus that they had in the collections and they put them in one place and people queued round the block to stand before the mystery of Jesus on the cross. To be drawn into art, to stand there for hours looking at this story and working out what it means, what it says, how it speaks. Art that draws us in that invites us into a mystery, into a lifelong journey and a quest for seeking God. Poetic language, the Bible, this story is full of it. Why? Because it invites us to participate. It invites us to find for ourselves. So just in conclusion, the writing on the wall, a, a, a difficult passage in lots of ways, but three things for you to think about as we go from here today. The first, do you know your fault lines? Do you know where your fault lines lie? Do you, do you know where, where you keep going back time and time again? And have you got people in your life that can walk with you and support you and help you, stop you from returning there? Are you humble enough to be a lifelong learner? This is perhaps key for me in this passage. Because it's what Belshazzar fails to do, learn the lessons of the past. Are we people who are willing to continue to learn? I guess Muhammad Ali who said, if you think the same thing as you did 25 years ago, you've wasted 25 years of your life. Are you growing? Are you learning? Are you developing? Are you a lifelong learner? And finally, uh, my challenge, and I, I'm with Brian McLaren, I'm afraid. You can argue it out with me if you want. I'm happy to have that conversation over a coffee sometime. But I think we need to share our faith in ways that empower and invite others into the mysterious love of God. I think the days of standing on the street corner with placards and shouting at people and trying to tell them are long gone. 
Instead, we need to work out how as a gospel we can present it in a way that, as Jesus did through parable, as this story does for Belshazzar, we invite people into the mystery on a journey to find out for themselves the tremendous love of God and the love that he has for them. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the, the, just the tremendous stuff we've been getting out of this book and this story of Daniel. And Lord, as we reflect on some of the things that have come out this morning from, from this, this, this chapter, Lord, we do not want to be like Belshazzar. His fault line was arrogance and pride. I wonder where ours is. We want to be people who are prepared to learn the lessons of the past, of our past, but of others' past. And to be transformed and changed. And Lord, as we as a church, as we as individuals seek to share our faith, may we do so in a winsome way, in a way that draws people into your story. That invites people on a journey to know your love and to discover your love for them. Lord, continue to guide and lead us as we seek to apply and and work out how to live this as a church and as individuals. In Jesus' name. Amen.